Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, as expected, Ohio's redistricting maps are facing a court challenge now, and there's more at stake than just the future makeup of the state legislature. Also this morning, for those who have had a run-in with the law that remains unresolved, the Findlay Municipal Court's 2021 Safe Surrender Day may be the opportunity to clear that case once and for all. We'll have details. In our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, why the industry says concerns and fears about large-scale solar projects are misplaced. And it's the question every parent has struggled with, wondered, and worried about how and when to transition baby to solid food. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, September 30th, 2021. Today is Ask a Stupid Question Day. Like, ask a stupid question. Are we uh, are we done talking about Britney Spears yet? <laughs> we little Britney Spears overload over the past uh, couple of couple of weeks. I don't know. Maybe it's a stupid question. It is Chewing Gum Day today. Extra Virgin Olive Oil Day. <laughs> uh, if there's ever anything that needed its own day, Extra Virgin Olive Oil. International Blasphemy Rights Day, celebrating your right to be blasphemous, I guess. International Podcast Day, if you are listening on the podcast this morning, then congratulations, you are participating. International Podcast Day today. International Translation Day, National Hot Mold Cider Day, National Love People Day. I will do my very best to love people today. Sometimes that's not real easy to do. <laughs> I know we've all had those moments where we don't necessarily love people, but today is the day to do that. Make the extra effort. National Mud Pack Day, and it is time for yoga day today. So make some time for yoga and a hot mold cider. While you consider stupid questions, but we love the people who ask them. There you go. We're all, we're all set. So uh, this is really interesting. Uh, the story, we like to uh, start off with the uh, most interesting, buzzworthy stories uh, of the day. First things you need to know to start your day. And the Newburgh, Oregon School Board has voted to ban its teachers in the district from displaying in their classrooms... Quote, political, quasi-political, or controversial symbols or emblems. The uh, four to three vote by the uh, school board initially banned Black Lives Matter and LGBT plus pride symbols. Those were the original targets of this rule. But the language was later broadened after public pushback and concerns about potential litigation if they prohibited certain political, quasi-political, or controversial symbols or emblems and allowed others. So now it's all out. The vice chairman of the Newburgh School Board, Brian Shannon, who introduced the measure, said this should not be a controversial rule that we don't pay our teachers to push their political views on our students. That is not their place. Their place is to teach the approved curriculum. 
Now, there are opponents to this. The Oregon State Board of Education, the Newburgh City Council, and the Newburgh Education Association, the union that represents educators and staff in the district, all are opposed. The union saying, we cannot let this group of four impose their own political agenda, erode our rights, and strip our support of our students. Our educators are united in their goal to create classrooms where students can walk in and feel like they belong, unquote. So I don't know um, if the Black Lives Matter, the uh, pride symbols and such are banned, but so are, say, Trump flags in the classroom. If it's all banned, then it would seem that they are treating everyone equally, which would meet the criteria required for a rule of this type, one would think. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting. The Education Association statement uh, basically says prohibiting political agendas in the classroom is itself a political agenda. And so can you make that argument? So it, it just seems like uh, there's there's nothing. There's no real good answer to this is the bottom line. Um, you want to prevent political statements in the classroom, but by trying to do so, that is of itself a political statement. It's just a vicious circle is the way it appears. So stay tuned. There will be more about this story, I'm sure, but it will be one of those that will be very uh, vociferously discussed on social media, as it were. Here's something interesting. The bumblebee may soon be considered endangered in the U.S., The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says the bumblebee population has declined nearly 90% in the past couple of decades due to habitat destruction, pesticides, competition with honeybees, um, and climate change. The bumblebee has also completely vanished from eight states since 2002. Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, Idaho, North Dakota, Oregon, and Wyoming have no bumblebees. That they know of. As a result, the Fish and Wildlife Service says that adding the insect to the threatened or endangered species list may be warranted. They also note its loss would have considerable consequences to entire ecosystems, not to mention crop production. So we've talked about that. Uh, The uh, honeybees are making a comeback, but the bumblebees are still highly at risk. So stay tuned on that. The uh, Beijing Winter Olympics right around the corner. I know we just had the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, so it's a very quick turnaround because the Summer Games were delayed because of the pandemic. That means the Winter Olympics are now right around the corner because they alternate these every couple of years. And when you delay... The Summer Olympics by a year, boom, all of a sudden, the Winter Olympics are upon you. Uh, they will take next uh, take place next February, the uh, Beijing Winter Games. And it's kind of interesting. You remember the Summer Games not only delayed a year, uh, but there were restrictions, virtually no fans. Initially, they were going to ban foreign spectators. And then, with the resurgence of the pandemic, they banned all spectators uh, at the Tokyo Games and 
Because the pandemic still isn't over, many of the same precautions from the Tokyo Games will also be used in Beijing. No foreign fans will be allowed, and that includes athletes, families, and friends. So they will not be able to be there to watch their loved ones compete. Unlike Tokyo, though, some fans from China will be allowed to attend events. Uh, The International Olympic Committee announced that athletes will be kept in what's being called a closed-loop management system. That's their terminology for a bubble. (laughs) That's what we call it in this country. Keep them in a bubble. Just as they were in Tokyo, including having their own transportation system. And also, as at the Tokyo Games, there will not be a COVID-19 vaccine vaccine mandate for athletes and trainers and coaches and so on. But this time around, anyone who is not fully vaccinated will have to quarantine for 21 days before their competition. So that is the deal with the upcoming Winter Olympics in February. You know how uh, some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start your day, you know how the labor market has been tight Um, for a number of reasons. Some people just not interested in returning to work so long as the enhanced unemployment benefits were in place. But that's not the only reason. In some cases, uh, workers in certain businesses found other jobs that were available and haven't returned to, you know, like food service and so on. So that business sector is is struggling. And then the labor participation rate is down, mainly because older Americans are ready to opt out of the workforce altogether, even if it means a more modest retirement. This is a new survey from Coventry Direct. Um, The buzzword in the aftermath of the pandemic is the Great Resignation, the Great Recession, or the the Great Resignation. Peter Hershon, Senior Vice President of Account Services at Coventry Direct, tells Yahoo Money we are seeing more and more seniors, whether by choice or due to unforeseen circumstances, leaving the workplace at a younger age than they originally anticipated. Some of them just want to be done. They're ready to check out of the rat race. Almost four in five boomers reported that they would rather retire and live out their years in modesty than work for another decade and live large with the years they have left. So kind of interesting that uh, we're just saying, you know what? I'd, I'd rather live a little bit more modestly and have more time to myself. It does present an interesting choice for uh, those who are getting close to retirement. Does this make you, does all of this make you decide to just chuck it and push it, push your retirement up a years? If you are not ready to retire, though, but you want to do something new, uh, then I have a job for you. I want to consider this. Because of the pandemic, many countries have found themselves low on certain types of workers. And in the case in Ireland, it is a shortage of clowns. (laughs) That's right. Many performers, apparently uh, in Ireland, there was a a large influx of foreign-born clowns. Not a whole lot of people in Ireland take up the profession, so they were bringing people in from other countries. Well, when the lockdowns came into force early last year, David Duffy, co-owner of Duffy's Circus, tells the BBC 
they had to shut down because they had no clowns. Uh, Now they are looking to start up their touring schedule again following changes in COVID-19 restrictions in that country. Unfortunately for Mr. Duffy, performers have been able to get work in other countries and that has uh, that have opened up more quickly and that has left him short of clowns. So he is appealing to people from Northern Ireland to take up the profession. And if you are wondering what makes a good clown, say you have to be self-deprecating and very strong in your personal sense of self because not everyone likes to be laughed at but for someone who's a clown your worst nightmare would be not to be laughed at uh you have to be able to poke fun at yourself it's not about poking fun at other people so if you have ever wanted to be a clown there is a future for you in ireland just something to think about i just put it out there Do with that what you will. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast. Mostly sunny today with a high of 75. Mostly clear tonight, a low of 50. Hancock Public Health says federal authorities have alerted them that criminal drug networks are flooding the country with lethal counterfeit pills containing fentanyl and methamphetamine. Hancock Public Health is reminding people that they have Narcan kits available, no questions asked. Gary Bright says it's clear to them that the more Narcan kits they get to people, the fewer fatal overdoses that are going to happen. And then the higher chance that those folks who get revived will have at least the opportunity to get into treatment and recovery. The DEA says more than 9.5 million counterfeit pills have been seized so far this year, which is more than the last two years combined. Two narcotics officers in Columbus have been arrested and stand accused of distributing fentanyl and attempting to smuggle other drugs. According to the Department of Justice, both officers were involved in the distribution of 7.5 kilograms of fentanyl. That's about 15 pounds. Additionally, investigators say Marino accepted $44,000 in cash this year in exchange for transporting 27 kilograms of what he thought was cocaine. Instead, court documents show the transactions were actually being controlled by the FBI as part of its investigation. Dave James, I went in news. An approximately 1,000-acre solar generation facility is coming to the Arcadia area. Ben Metcalf, director of project development for Gatehead Development, says he understands people in the community have concerns. What's it going to look like? Is it going to make noise? Is it going to pose any risk to me or my family? So we've looked for opportunities to engage, and we're going to continue to, you'll see a lot of us in town, continue to engage and answer questions and be available. Finley Hancock County Economic Development says the operation will generate a million dollars annually for local school districts, townships, and the county. Get more on the project on our website. Hancock Public Health has a handful of flu clinics coming up. The health agency will be offering five vaccination opportunities from now through October 19th. The first clinic is a drive through flu clinic that will be held this afternoon at the Marion Township House on State Route 568. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM.
Well, last week, you recall, we spoke with both State Representative John Cross and State Senator Rob McCauley about Ohio's new redistricting maps that have been highly controversial in some circles. In fact, there is now a legal challenge claiming that they were drawn up specifically to protect the Republican dominance of state politics. But there is more at stake in redistricting than just the makeup of the state legislature. Dr. Katie Rossiter is Assistant Professor of Geography with the Institute for Civics and Public Policy at Ohio Northern University, who has worked at the Census Bureau and teaches a class on the subject of redistricting. And Dr. Rossiter, as as most people know, I'm sure Ohio is going to lose one seat in the U.S. House of Representatives based off the numbers of the latest census. So there is that whole layer uh, of uh, an issue that we have to uh, think about as well in all of this. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, we went from, we, we have 16 currently, we're going down to 15 in this next round. And now that the state house and state senate maps are done, the focus of the commission will turn to those 15 congressional district maps. Well, and that's what, yeah, and, and, and that's what I was going to ask. I, I feel like I should probably all uh, already know exactly how this works, but uh, just to make sure that we have it right, is the same commission responsible for drawing the maps that are so controversial in the state uh, legislature also going to be drawing that map for the U.S. House as well? Yes, you're correct. Um, the commission is the same. Um, the rules are very similar. It's just the deadlines in which they are due are a little bit later than the first map. Now, you have pointed out that there are a couple of different schools of thought about the quote-unquote proper way to draw district boundaries. You can either try and include roughly the same number of Republicans and Democrats and let the best candidate with the best idea win, or you can draw them in such a way that like-minded people are grouped together and each side gets to send their person to the legislature. There are arguments to be made for each of those approaches, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And I think, well, I think maybe ideally you end up with a sort of combination of, of those two things where you have some districts that are grouping like people together and they're very blue or very red districts. Um, and then I think you can have some areas where you have a mix and you let the best person win. And I think overall trying to aim for more propor- proportional designation across all 15 districts is what people are really looking for. So if, you know, for example, in the 2020 election, um, Trump won about 53% of the vote in Ohio. So perhaps having, you know, 50 some percent of the districts be red in Ohio and maybe Mm. then the remaining be blue. So trying to do a combination of those things, having some competitive areas, but then also um, accommodating those areas that are highly Republican or highly Democratic and having them have their own districts as well. Um, now, the the Constitution doesn't really give a whole lot of guidance as to exactly how this has to be done. It's sort of like uh, like the elections process itself. This is left pretty much to for the states to decide individually how they want to do that. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. There are about eight traditional redistricting criteria, making sure that the population is equal in all districts, making Mm -hmm. sure they're compact, contiguous, and so on. But each state's constitution dictates how they want to use those eight criteria. Um, And so for Ohio, we're worried about equaling out the population. We have to accommodate for the Voting Rights Act, so creating some minority-majority districts. And then looking at administrative boundaries and how often those can be split, how often counties can be split, cities can be split, and so on. And so those are what Ohio 
Ohio will concentrate on when drawing the congressional district. And of course, the the biggest issue, the one that everybody is going to be paying attention to, as we mentioned, Ohio is losing a congressional seat uh, in the U.S. House, which means that someone is going to be out of a job. And who is that most likely to be? Yeah, that is an excellent question. Um, I think it depends on how the maps are drawn. In the past, um, I feel like it has been a Democrat that has been out Mm -hmm. um, because the maps would favor the Republicans. And so possibly combining areas where you have heavily um, Democrats living um, Mm -hmm. where they might have had enough people for two representatives before now they would go down to one Um, so we can see if that happens again this time around Um, if it goes the way that the state house and senate maps were drawn i think that's likely the way it will go for the congressional districts as well yeah there has been some supposition that with the balance of power in congress being so tight uh, that, uh, for example, Marcy Captor's district with that snake on the lake uh, might perhaps put her seat into play and that her district might be uh, divvied up into uh, other districts. Uh, I, I can certainly see something like that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And with the sort of new rules that are in place for how these boundaries are drawn, only so many counties can be split once and only, I think, maybe five counties can be split twice we will hopefully see less of that sort of stake on the lake sort of boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, is going to affect who, who gets to run and who, whose job is, is out. Yeah, and, and, and there are also uh, a lot of politics at play uh, even within the party because uh, it, it wasn't all that long ago when districts were being uh, redrawn. I, I seem to recall uh, folks were saying that Jim Jordan might be on the hot seat because at the time he was not particularly popular within his own party. And so there was some uh, questions as to whether he might end up being drawn out uh, even with Republicans in control. So uh, it's hard to imagine Jim Jordan's uh, seat disappearing now, but uh, once upon a time, uh, he was not as popular within his own party as he is uh, today. So there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that could impact all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And there's supposed to be more transparency in the process this time around. Um, They did have some public hearings for the state House and Senate maps. Um, They do um, allow public to submit their own maps for consideration. Um, But I think, yeah, I think the politics of play behind the scenes is, is going to play a much larger role. Now, I know that there are some who would like to put Ohio solidly in the red column for the next decade. We we certainly have been trending more red over the past several election cycles. But Ohio also has a long history of being an important swing state in federal elections. And I know that congressional races and presidential races are different animals. But is there a risk in the way we slice up these districts that we sacrifice the larger influence that Ohio has as a swing state? I think there is. I mean, I'm, I'll admit this isn't my area of expertise, but if you're talking about dividing up 15 small areas of Ohio or, you know, dividing Ohio into 15 different areas yeah. and those are largely red, 
I would think that that would impact the the voters' view on how Ohio is seen, and perhaps then the larger election and when it comes to the presidential election. And, and of course, having more people in our state campaigning for um, sure. the Republican Party would also, I think, affect that as well. Yeah, there is a political power to be wielded uh, in being a swing state uh, that that you can uh, have that influence uh, not only of candidates visiting Ohio more often, but also uh, when it comes to you know federal projects, federal funding, you know, all of those things as a swing state, uh, there are definitely some benefits to being seen that way. So uh, even though, again, partisans on, on both sides would love to be solidly in one side uh, or the other, but uh, being purple does have its benefits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's great when they can come to town and they can actually yeah. listen to what we have to say and what our issues are. Sure. So if we don't have that, there's going to be that disconnectedness for sure. We mentioned that uh, the drawing up of the districts in the way they have been uh, for the uh, state legislature uh, has led to legal action. Do opponents have a case here? I mean, can they force the commission to go back to the drawing board and do this over again? Yeah, they can. And I think that's what they're, they're counting on. I think they weren't expecting the process to to be fair in their minds. And so I think they were preparing ahead of time for this sort of thing. They, they filed just about a week later since those maps came out. And there's, I think there, I believe there's two now, the ACLU and the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Um, and, but it will need to be handled by our state Supreme Court, and they'll have to decide if they want to send it back or not. Currently, the federal Supreme Court isn't deciding on these issues. They do feel like it's a state issue. So we'll have to see what our Ohio Supreme Court has to say. You know, as uh, again, we were talking last week with uh, State Representative uh, John Cross, State Senator Rob McCauley, and and, you know, as both of them indicated, and it's very true, uh, there are umpteen million different ways to piece this puzzle together. Ultimately, uh, you know, nobody is going to be 100% satisfied with the way it comes out uh, in the end. Ultimately, uh, folks are just going to have to find something that everyone can live with, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are lots of different ways to do this. Uh, I, the one, I don't want to say good factor, but if you don't agree with the maps that are out right now, they are only good now for four years. For four years, Instead yeah. of being full 10, which you know, the way that these lines have been drawn, chances are we'll have a similar situation four years from now, but there could be a change and we could see different maps. Yeah. And then, of course, the courts could step in and also tell us what they think. Yeah. Uh, uh, sidebar to that. Would that also apply to the uh, federal maps? Uh, would it be that four years from now we'd have to redraw those as well? Yeah, if they're approved in the okay. same way, yes. If there There is a, hmm. a stage in which we can get a 10-year map, but I don't. Um, I think that deadline is in two days, and I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Probably not. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, not only how this all comes out, but what may happen four years on down the line in all likelihood. Again, uh, Dr. Katie Rossiter, Assistant Professor of Geography with the Institute for Civics and Public Policy at Ohio Northern University, talking about the wide-ranging impact of this redistricting thing. And Dr. Rossiter, thanks very much for your insight. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. For those who have had a run-in with the law that remains unresolved, the Findlay Municipal Court's 2021 Safe Surrender Day could be the opportunity to clear that case once and for all. And joining us are uh, Municipal Court Judges uh, Alan Hackenberg and Stephanie Bishop, and thanks both of you for uh, joining uh, this morning. We certainly appreciate it. 
I think by now, most people are probably familiar with the concept of the idea of Safe Surrender Day. They've done it for a number of years now. But for those who may not be, kind of explain the concept behind this. Okay, thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here this morning to promote the event. Well, when the judges call, <laughs> uh, we say yes, absolutely, you can come in. That's it. Well, well, <laughs> you know, we appreciate Chris, that. Yeah. <laughs> Were everyone so as obedient and so understanding uh, as you, we wouldn't probably have to have this kind of event, right? So <laughs> probably, probably. So safe yeah, surrender so day is what? It's an opportunity for individuals that have an active bench warrant through our court to come into the court and report to the court to address whatever the underlying issue is that has caused the bench warrant without the fear of being arrested. So Mm. they can come in and take advantage of the program. They aren't taken to jail. They just are then kind of reset to where they were prior to the warrant. And then they can go ahead and either get their community service uh, rescheduled, their jail days rescheduled, or mm-hmm. hold the hearing that caused the bench warrant that they failed to appear So, for. So what would be different uh, than just a, an ordinary scenario? I mean, if I, if I learn that I have a bench warrant uh, for some reason and I turn myself into the court, I come down and I say, hey, I've learned I've got a warrant, what would be different? on this day versus any other time on this day you won't be going to jail so on any other day there's the potential that you're going to jail depending on yeah. what type of warrant it is because yeah. if you've repeatedly failed to appear in the past then mm-hmm. there's the concern that if we release that warrant you aren't going to comply with whatever that order is so sure. on on this date you won't be going to jail we'll clear that bench warrant and then reset whatever it is that you were supposed to be doing hold the hearing that day mm-hmm. give you an opportunity to then comply with whatever order it was that you so complied with. It, so it expedites the process Correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. by a great deal. Now, that's not to say, and this is something we've talked about before, uh, that's not to say this is a jet get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, no sentence is going to be modified uh, on this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come in, we'll give them, like Judge Bishop has said, a chance to reset. They can re-engage treatment if they miss treatment. They can re-engage community service if they miss community service if they miss their jail commitment they can reschedule their jail commitment Mm -hmm. if they missed a hearing we can hold the hearing most likely we do have the assistance of the hancock county public defender's office once again as well as the uh, finley city prosecutor's office uh and certainly if uh, which is good news if folks don't have an attorney or concerned about that yes yes they're willing they're on they will be there ready to help uh, and assist people get these hearings held Mm -hmm. and hopefully conclude their matter so yeah um now the what types of, of warrants are we talking about? What types of cases would be involved? Okay, any warrant that any individual has. So whether it's they failed to appear for a pretrial hearing, failed to appear for a plea hearing, failed to report to jail for their scheduled sentence, haven't complied with the order in regards to whether they're supposed to be engaged in mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, um, if they have fines and costs that are outstanding and didn't appear for a status conference hearing so any type of bench warrant that is in our court they are able to come and address on that day. and how far back do some of these go i know uh, <laughs> in the past you've uh, cleared uh, literally hundreds of these cases off the books how uh, far back do they go you know the warrants conceivably go back as far as 2010 2002 wow. 1996 wow uh, you know they they you know, there's no expiration date on bench warrants, <laughs> mm-hmm. so they can go back quite a far, uh, quite a ways away. Uh, typically, they're more recently within the last couple of years. And so, how does the process work? Uh, explain, kind of take us through the process here for those who you know, find themselves in this situation. Okay. If an individual wants to find out if they do have a bench warrant, first they can check our website. Go to our website at finleymunicipalcourt.com. They can click on the Safe Surrender Event tab. 
and then that link will take them to a, a page that will then allow them to check to see if they have an active warrant. Mm-hmm. If they do, they can either show up on the date or th- if they want to schedule an appointment, we do prefer appointments um, just based on the p- fact that we want to make sure we're able to accommodate everybody. Right. So if they want to call to make an appointment, they can contact the clerk's office at 419-424-7141. Like I said, walk-ins are welcome. We're certainly not going to turn anybody away. Yeah, but that's we would, that, that's we would like a little, bit, little bit different than uh, last year. I think last year you had to have an appointment, so kind of relax that a little bit. Uh, Correct. Uh, we think certainly that turned a few people away, uh, not being able to just sort of come in uh, right. at their convenience. So yeah. again, we're trying to be mindful of uh, certainly the uh, pandemic still going on, mm-hmm. uh, but also trying to encourage people to uh, show up and we will address them and take them. Uh, certainly those who have appointments, we will handle them on a priority basis yeah. uh, if, if they have an appointment. So, and, and what do folks need to bring with them to this event? Uh, they don't need to bring anything, but if they have uh, ver- verification that they've completed some community service that we haven't received those records, they should bring that. If they have verification they've completed some program that they had failed to appear or failed to complete that resulted in the be- bench warrant, they certainly can bring that. But mm-hmm. they would still be meeting with our compliance department to sign a release okay. to get those things directly from the entity. So, uh, so basically themselves. So a, a good point, though, if you have supporting documents uh, in a case, then obviously you want to have uh, that if if possible. Um, and uh, when is the uh, the date and the times and you know all of the nuts and bolts here? It'll be next Thursday on October 7th from 9 o'clock a.m. until 4 o'clock p.m. Okay, so a week from today. Correct. Uh, so um, we've got the link up on our webpage for uh, more information uh, about Safe Surrender Day and uh, the process, how it works, how you can make an appointment. We've Got it all linked up at goodmornings.net. And again, uh, Judges Alan Hackenberg and Stephanie Bishop with us uh, this morning from the P- Finley Municipal Court. And by the way, this this applies to uh, warrants for the Finley Municipal Court specifically, correct? correct. Yes. Correct. So yeah. if there are other cases <laughs> and other uh, courts, that doesn't apply. Right. We don't have any authority or ability to release another court's warrant or address another court's warrant. So okay. only Finley Municipal Court. Okay, so uh, important note there. Uh, again, goodmornings.net. Thanks very much for uh, dropping by. Thank you very much for having us. Have a good morning. You may remember yesterday on the program, we spoke with the folks who are developing one of the large solar energy products uh, projects near Arcadia about the pilot agreement that they have reached now with the county on future tax revenue to be generated by the Border Basin Solar Farm. Now, those projects have generated many questions and some pushback for local residents, but the industry says uh, those uh, fears and, uh, and concerns of nearby residents and township officials is misplaced. Back in early August, we spoke with Jason Raffeld. He is executive director of Ohio's Utility Scale Solar Energy Coalition. It is today's Throwback Thursday. Part of the objection uh, comes from the size of these projects. It is one thing to put up a bank of solar panels to power an individual farm operation or even a factory, but we're talking about a utility scale operation of literally hundreds of acres here. There's sort of no way around that. Um, they, they, they are a big installation, and you're right. Many of them are hundreds of acres, and some of them are bigger than that. So, I mean, farmers are, I mean, I come from a farm family, and we still have a farm in Ashland, Ohio, and it's a business, and it's to make money. And so, 
these farmers, these landowners that are approached, um, this is a pretty lucrative, lucrative opportunity for them. As a general rule of thumb, I would suggest that as compared with growing, for example, corn or beans, you're probably looking at a maybe a four to six times multiple per year uh, of uh, of revenue to that farmer. And that's guaranteed usually for 30 to 40 years. In the minds of many, these projects are being funded through out-of-state investors who some argue have no incentive to maintain the facilities properly or to ensure that they are not obtrusive to the community. And they question what will happen where will those invisible investors be when these facilities have, for example, reached the end of their lifespan? So we're fortunate here in Ohio to have uh, the Ohio Power Siding Board, uh, which is a, a very stringent uh, process, often takes more than a year uh, for these projects to get through. As you might imagine, it takes a long time, takes a handful of years often for these developers to put these projects together. There are many, many requirements throughout the Power Siding Board process, one of them being what's called the requirement to have a decommissioning bond, uh, which is when the project is complete or, or taken down, there has to be money to cover cover the costs uh, of, of taking it down. You talk about the fact that the projected lifespan of a solar farm is 30 to 40 years, and I think 40 years is the number that's been floated uh, for these particular uh, developments or proposed developments here locally. But this is a rapidly changing industry right now, and and again, a lot of people will say there is no guarantee that energy prices are not going to change uh, and, and render such a large-scale operation less cost-effective even a decade uh, down the road. What then? What if these companies aren't around to live up to the obligations? Again, you go back to concerns over the fact that these aren't local companies in large part that we're dealing with. They're not vested in the community. What then? I think they are vested in the community, and, and that should be shown uh, through the community engagement, through all the time they spent putting the project together, through all the time they spent speaking to uh, the township trustees, the county commissioners, and all the other elected officials that are there. Uh, you know, these are these projects are uh, based on a competitive electricity market, so they are uh, their interests are to to be successful here, to have a competitive price. Most of the times, the the product or the offtake, as they call it in industries, which is actually the electrons, are are bought sometimes outright. They'll buy the, all the output for 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 the entirety of the project. Sometimes it's bought ten years at a time. Sometimes sometimes fifteen or twenty years at a time. So usually the output from these projects is is actually sold at the beginning, uh, thereby effectively guaranteeing the longevity of the project. What is the long-term future for this? Looking beyond just these uh, projects that are, again, proposed uh, here locally, what is the long-term outlook for Ohio generally? I mean, again, I look back at some of the other uh, proposed projects that we have had uh, in the state of Ohio, particularly with wind, that again, also face uh, quite a bit of opposition. And that opposition has uh, been able to derail some of those projects uh, over the uh, past several years. What is the outlook for these types of solar, large-scale solar projects, and do you expect to have any greater success than maybe what wind has in gaining a foothold uh, in the state? 
Hey, Chris, that's an insightful point. And I think people often refer to, you know, renewables and wind and solar as if they're sort of one thing. And they're not. They're very, very different technologies. They operate differently. You know, solar is low to the ground. You're usually talking about 10 to 12 feet, maybe no more than 14. Uh, they're quiet. They don't really move. They very, very slowly track the sun throughout the daytime. At night, they don't do anything. Uh, there's a very few people that come and go to maintain the, the, the facility. You know, most of the solar solar farms are covered up by vegetative screening, indigenous trees and shrubs and bushes. So, you know, they're very, very different. So for that reason alone, uh, I think solar is going to be much more successful than wind. It's just it's just it's a very benign land use that just kind of sits there and collects the sun. It doesn't really do much else. You actually have a website where folks can learn more about these types of projects and their future in the state of Ohio, correct? Yeah, we're at ohiosolarcoalition.com. That's ohiosolarcoalition.com. Got some information up about our organization and about uh, projects in general. We've also got a place there if people have questions, they can send them to us. You know, but also uh, the folks, I know there was an, there was an article uh, that I read last week with some folks with concerns. And as I said, I think concerns are reasonable and those should be expressed. The particular developers, you know, y- you should ask them the questions. Ask them what they're going to do. Ask them how they're going to address uh, their concerns. You know, that's the job of the developer. To, to answer the questions in the community and, and make the uh, make the local residents feel more comfortable. From August 3rd of this year, today's Throwback Thursday with Jason Raffeld, Executive Director of Ohio's Utility, Scalers, uh, Utility Scale Solar Energy Coalition. If you want to hear the full interview with uh, Mr. Raffeld, you can uh, scroll back to the August 3rd podcast edition of the program. The, that link is at our webpage, along with the uh, link to the uh, Solar Energy Coalition's uh, website with more information about these projects. Again, goodmornings.net to learn more. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the hot and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Police in Madison, Wisconsin, are trying to locate a $1,400 bronze sculpture of Humpty Dumpty sitting on a toilet. (laughs) The uh, sculpture, entitled Dumpty Humpty, was stolen from a vendor's booth at an Art Fair on the Square event this past Saturday. (laughs) It's valued at $1,400, and the Madison Police Department says they have security footage of two men who they believe might be responsible for taking the the sculpture. But as yet, no arrests have been made, and Dumpty Humpty has yet to be located. I got to think something like that would be hard to hide. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's hoping that uh, Humpty uh, is, what is all the king's horses, all the king's men putting Humpty Dumpty back where he or Dumpty Humpty back where he belongs again. Something like that. Um, you got to think that alcohol is involved uh, in that. Here's something kind of interesting. What is the most embarrassing thing you have ever done while drinking? A man in Turkey who met up with some friends and later wandered off into a forest while drunk. (laughs) So picture this. Uh, (laughs) You meet up with, you hook up with some friends, you're, you know, out for a night uh, drinking and he wanders off. So his friends call police because he's gone missing. So they send out a search and rescue party (laughs) 
And the guy that they're searching for actually ended up joining the search and rescue effort to find himself. (laughs) The man had been reported missing by family early Tuesday after he found out it was him that the searchers were looking for. (laughs) He was like, wait a minute, you looking for me? I was... Police were able to give him a ride home and (laughs) joined in a search and rescue effort for himself. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of uh, having a little too much to drink, uh, a fire captain in Arkansas, now resigned fire captain, is claiming involuntary intoxication as his defense in a fight at a casino Last month in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, Benjamin Snodgrass was charged with battery for a fight outside the Oaklawn Casino when the uh, victim, who is Asian, uh, Asian, uh, says uh, Mr. Snodgrass told him he did not belong in the country. Well, that sparked uh, sparked a fracas. Uh, Mr. Snodgrass's defense is that he had consumed 10 alcoholic beverages and also he was dosed with a hallucinogen. He goes on to say that first responders of Garland County failed him. (laughs) All right. Involuntary intoxication. Prosecutors say there is no evidence that he was drugged, although they do believe that he may have willingly taken some sort of hallucinogen and perhaps forgotten about it. (laughs) He's scheduled for another court hearing tomorrow. So stay tuned. Man in North Dakota has been saddled with a massive cleanup job. This is crazy. I mean, this is one of those bad day stories. You know you're having a bad day if this happens to you. And if this hasn't happened to you, then maybe you're not having such a bad day after all. Man in North Dakota have been saddled with a massive cleanup job caused by a tiny furry perpetrator. A red squirrel, he says, will... Come behind, run along the frame rail, and all the way up to the front of his truck. Uh, And Bill Fisher, the owner of the truck, seemingly cannot win this war because a beautiful black walnut tree in the yard produces nuts that the red squirrel finds irresistible. The squirrel has picked Mr. Fisher's Chevy Avalanche as the winter storage hideout for hundreds of these nuts. Each of them is about the size of a small lemon. He says he has fished out 42 gallons of black walnuts from his truck from every cracking crevice. (laughs) He says the uh, squirrel is storing the nuts in the radiator fan all the way to every other corner of the vehicle where the squirrel can get to has been covered full with walnuts. Oh, that would be a mess to clean up, wouldn't it? That's How would you like to have that happen to you? And finally, in the broken news this morning, the odd and unusual side of the headlines, they say slow and steady wins the race, but it also could mess up a flight schedule at a major airport. A turtle held up dozens of passengers and flight crews at Narita International Airport near Tokyo this past Friday. Officials say the reptile, weighing over just over four pounds and about a foot long, was spotted by a pilot just before his plane was scheduled to take off, crossing the runway. Air, tra- 
Air traffic control had to order all flights to pause while the staff, airport staff, safely captured the turtle and checked the runway for other anomalies, prompting further delay. Ironically, one of the planes that was halted by the incident was an all-Nippon Airways Airbus A830, which happens to be decorated with blue sea turtles. It's in a paint scheme. <laughs> Save the turtle. And I guess that's what they did at the airport, but it held up flights, caused massive delays. Can you imagine uh, missing your flight or uh, trying to tell your boss if you're in a business flight? I couldn't get to the very important meeting because there was a turtle on the runway. That's, I kid you not, that's... There you go. Uh, that is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Agriculture is a big deal in the Buckeye State. That's why WFIN keeps you informed throughout the day with reports on Ohio's largest industry. This is Dale Menyo from the Ohio Agnet. We start your weekday mornings at 5.30 and 7.35 with that day's farm news. Then a midday update at 10.45. Markets at 11.15 and the closing numbers weekday afternoons at 5.45. Stay up to date with the latest agricultural information weekdays on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Really interesting stuff. We all know how hard it can be to put down our phones sometimes, right? But just how attached or maybe addicted to our devices are we? A new survey finds that Americans check their phones on average 96 times a day, which works out to every 10 minutes. This is according to global tech care company Asurion. This is a survey that they commissioned. It is 96 times a day. That is 20% more than the last time they did this same survey just two years ago. Uh, 18 to 24-year-olds check their phones twice as much as the daily average. So I can't even imagine nearly 200 times a day. Although they are well aware of their habits, 68% of those 18 to 24-year-olds say they uh, are more likely than the average person to try and limit their phone time. They are actively trying to cut back. Uh, What's more, and I thought this was interesting, the research revealed that for the very first time, texting has replaced calling someone, uh, uh, even among the last holdouts for that, baby boomers. Uh, Baby boomers are now seven times more likely to text than they are to talk to a person face-to-face, and twice as likely to text message someone as they are to make a phone call. And they were the last holdouts in terms of texting over calling. And I don't know if this has happened to you. I know for me, for me, I, I do, do this all the time. It drives me, kind of drives me crazy. If I try and call my kids on their cell phone, they won't answer. But if I text them, they'll text me back right away. <laughs> Just evidence that that is the preferred method of communication. Also rather revealing from this survey, nine out of 10 Americans, um, get offended when someone checks their phone while they are having an in-person conversation. And I am very guilty of that. I am very guilty of, of doing that. If I'm having a conversation with someone, something will pop in the back of my brain and I'll I'll check my phone. 75% of Americans admit to doing it ourselves, even though nine out of 10 say we're offended when someone else does it. 
Uh, one in five Americans say they actually do this frequently. And again, uh, I, I have to admit, I am guilty of that. All of this said, 50% of Americans insist that their cell phone use makes them more productive, not more distracted. So you can decide for yourself whether that's the case. But half of Americans feel that way. So interesting uh, numbers about our habits with our cell phones. Certainly the word addiction, I, I think, applies if you break down those numbers. Well, it is the question that every parent has struggled with, wondered, and worried about. How and when to transition their baby to solid food. And joining us now is Dr. Whitney Caceres, private practice pediatrician, published author, and podcast host. And Dr. Caceres, let's start with the when. What age should parents start to transition their children to solid foods? Yep. Great question. Parents are always asking that. And what I tell them is that every single baby is individual. So check with your pediatrician for guidance. But generally speaking, between four to six months is when we recommend starting solid foods. We really want parents to be thinking about developmental milestones, though, as their guide. So can your baby sit assisted or unassisted? Do they have good head control? Do they seem interested in food? And then are they able to swallow when you offer them a spoonful of food or does it just go out onto their chin and get pushed back out? And once you've determined the when, next comes the how. What are the steps uh, that you recommend to acclimate your child to the idea of solid food or semi-solid food? Yeah, that's right. You know, we want to have parents set themselves up for success and their baby up for success because, like you mentioned, it can be a little daunting to go on this process. And so think about, okay, I don't want my baby to be really too hungry or to be really tired when I'm starting out. Consider offering a little bit of breast milk or a formula, whatever they're used to, right before you offer your first solid food. So that way they're not too too hangry and they have a little something in their belly. And then also carefully consider what is going to be your first solid food or first few solid foods because what those are really matter. We want to make sure they're developmentally appropriate and they're nutrient dense. We want it to be love at first bite. That's what I was going to ask next. What types of foods are best for babies first taste? I'm interested in helping babies to eat the rainbow in that first year of life. And that includes fruits and vegetables and whole grains and meats. And so in the beginning, choosing fruits and vegetables and whole grains as a starting place are is a great option. And I am a huge fan of Gerber's My First Solid Starter Kit because it includes three of those important ingredients. It has two tubs of pureed sweet potato, two tubs of pureed banana, and then also a sachet of oatmeal cereal for baby. And one thing that people a lot of times don't realize about the cereals, they contain iron, which iron in babies about four to six months, it is there in the body and then it kind of naturally starts to deplete. And so we need to add it back in for babies using food. So you can mix that iron-rich cereal with a little bit of breast milk or formula, again, whatever they're used to, and create just the right texture for baby. Again, with those purees, it's feeding them nutritious foods in a 
safe, developmentally appropriate way. The ones that you mentioned are pretty much staples, I think, for most. I know, you know, when we introduced, first introduced our kids years and years ago to solid foods, it was sweet potatoes and bananas uh, and oatmeal. Some of those are, are uh, more. I don't want to say sharper, but some of those have more taste than others. Is there a balance that we want to strike between uh, the the ones that have a, a lot of taste and those that may be a little bit more bland, like, say, oatmeal? Absolutely. Over time, you want your baby to be exposed to all kinds of different tastes and textures, but you don't have to feel pressure to do that at the very, very beginning. Um, and what I would say also is just setting your expectations that your baby might give you kind of an ug face no matter what yeah. you feed them <laughs> in the beginning because they're just not used to it, yeah, right? It that- can take... 10, 30 times of starting a new food. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. As we all know, some kids are picky eaters, which can be exacerbating. Uh, But even if they're not particularly picky, it is inevitable that we are going to uh, try and get them to try some foods that they just ultimately won't like. Uh, How do parents kind of keep their cool through this whole process of dealing with uh, finding the new foods that the, the baby will actually... Uh, like and and enjoy and will eat. Listen, just like bees can smell fear, so can babies, right? <laughs> so try to stay as relaxed as possible. And for me as a busy working mom, I know that meant with my kids not starting solid foods on a workday morning when I had to rush out the door, doing it on a day when I had much more bandwidth, like on the weekend on the mor- in the morning. Also, setting that expectation about how they would maybe give me kind of a uh, face and then really thinking about, okay, it's going to be a mess and I'm okay with that. And finally, even as a pediatrician, I made sure that I had other input, that I had experts that were guiding me. And I always tell parents, my gosh, this isn't my first rodeo with solid foods, but I know it's yours. So reach out to me. Also, Gerber.com has an amazing website with 24-7 support for parents. They actually have an entire team, including a certified lactation consultant, registered dietitians, and even a sleep coach. They like to say, when they're when you're awake, they're awake. And so that is an amazing resource where parents can go on, get complimentary appointments and all the information and help that they need. Again, Dr. Whitney Caceres is a private practice pediatrician, published author, podcast host with answers to the eternal question that so many parents have, how and when to transition their baby to solid food. And uh, mention again the website where folks can get more resources, more help with this. You can go to Gerber.com for help along your baby's entire feeding journey. Dr. Caceres, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program. And remember, you can always find more information about all of the topics we talk about on the show each day at our webpage, that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow to wrap up the week in nearly every business category from fast food to executive professionals, workers are commanding premium pay and benefits. Do you know what you're really worth? I'll help you figure it out. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.